You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we come now to your word. We have worshipped you. We have meditated upon you and your goodness to us in the cross and your love. And we ask now that you would continue to be good to us in your word and open up our eyes to your word that we might have eyes to see and hearts to understand, that you would open up your word to us so that we might behold from it wonderful things this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Did you ever think you'd hear me say those words? Some of you thought you'd see Jesus before you ever saw Acts 28. And trust me, I feel your pain. Well, we're into the home stretch, beginning the last chapter of the book of Acts. And before we begin, I sort of want to give you a preview of what is to come in the next few weeks because we're, we're kind of beginning chapter 28. We're going to be handling sort of a mini theme, a, a miniature theme, not a a minor theme in terms of being small or insignificant, but sort of a, a passage of Scripture that uh, deals with... Uh, we have a series of messages, actually, about four or five, and I'm not sure which, but let me tell you what's ahead. The beginning of Acts chapter 28 is, is packed with miracles. There's a few miraculous things that happen at the beginning of this chapter, and I want you to just... We're going to read verses 1 through 12 together, 1 through 10 together, and uh, I want you just to see what's going on, and I'll tell you what to expect in the coming weeks. Chapter 28, verse 1, when they had brought, when we, they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. That's the passage we're going to deal with this morning, verses 1 through 6. And you can see that the miraculous happening there is that Paul's bitten by a poisonous viper and that he lives to tell about it. Beginning of verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, you'll find out next week. Who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurring, recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect and then we were setting sail. They supplied us with all that we needed. Now you can see that, that there's sort of two groups of miraculous occurrence. First in verses 1 to 6 is Paul getting bit by a viper and then living, nothing happening to him, suffering no harm. And then second, verses 7 through 10, having to do with the, the many miracles that were going on at the hands of Paul on the island of Malta. So this week we're going to deal with the verses 1 through 6, the snake. Next week, the, the other miracles on the island of Malta. The following week is... April 8th, that's Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to handle, deal with the topic of the miracle of resurrection on that Sunday. And then the following Sunday, it's either going to become one message or two messages, I'm not sure which, but we're going to 
step back from the book of Acts and we're going to ask ourselves, what does the book of Acts teach about miracles in general? And since we have now gone through the book of Acts, by the time we get to the the end of verse 10, we have studied in its context every miracle in the book of Acts. There's no more miracles that are recorded after this, either in the book of Acts or any time in Scripture after Acts 28. These are the last miracles that are recorded in the text of Scripture. That doesn't necessarily mean they were the last miracles that took place. It's just the last ones we have recorded. So since we have looked at all of the miracles now in the book of Acts, or at least we will by next week, we're going to go back and we're going to say, what does the book of Acts teach about miracles? And we're going to have a message just on the subject of miracles. And I'm hoping in that message we'll be able to answer some of your questions about miracles. But here's what I want you to do. There's a good chance that in dealing with the subject of miracles that many of you are going to have questions. What about faith healers? What about healing? What about miracles today? What about miracle workers today? Are they for today? What about miracles today? Does God still do miracles? Can he do miracles? What should we expect about miraculous? You're going to have all these questions. How do exorcisms fit into miracles? Are they for today? And I know that in many of your minds, you probably have some of those questions. So over the course of the next two weeks, I would like you to write those down or email them to me. Please, nothing anonymous. Write them down or email them to me, and I will try, without bringing up your name, on that message after Resurrection Sunday, try and deal with some of those questions. Because I don't want to get to the end of the book of Acts and have you say, well, what about this? Or what about such and such? Or so and so? Or how do you explain this? Or what do we think about this? I want to make sure I answer all of your questions. So you have until April 8th, Resurrection Sunday. And that gives you plenty of time. Don't trust my memory. Don't pass me in the hall and say, hey, I've always wondered about such and such. See you later. And then expect me to remember that. Put it on writing on a piece of paper so I have it tangible. And Lord willing, we'll try and deal with all of your questions about miracles. And we'll try and just systematize what does Scripture teach about miracles and how does that apply today. And I'm not sure if that's going to be one message or two messages. But for now, we're in Acts chapter 28, first six verses. The story of Paul getting bitten by a sniper. (laughs) Viper, I'm sorry. I wasn't sure if I was going to say snake or viper, and it came came out sniper. Paul doesn't get bit by a sniper or shot by a snake. He gets bitten by a viper. Acts 28, verses 1 to 6. Now, I know as you read through the passage, you read through these verses, there are probably some images that are coming to your mind and uh, some thoughts that are coming to your mind. One of them is probably Mark chapter 16, verse 17, where Jesus said, These signs will follow those who believe. They, In my name they will cast out demons. In my name they will speak in other tongues. They will, they pick up a snake or they drink a deadly poison. It will not harm them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they will be healed. And so the question is, what, what part does snake handling have today? Another image that you probably have in your mind is some picture of a long-haired, uh, tattooed, tongues-talking, religious wingnut handling cobras. Right? I remember as a kid, I saw a documentary. It was like Nightline or 2020 or one of those shows. It was on this snake handling group of quote-unquote Christians who handle snakes, and they were showing this as a demonstration of their faith. Now, to be to be fair, and I'm always trying to be fair, not all charismatics do that. Let's get that down. There are a lot of, the vast majority, I should say, of our charismatic brothers in Christ do not handle snakes. It's just what I like to refer to as the shake-and-bake kind that do that handling of snakes. They're the sort of the fringe, the wingnuts, the people that are way out on the fringes of the charismatic movement. It's the shake-and-bake charismatics who do all of the snake handling, but most charismatics do not. So what are we to learn about snake handling from this passage and Acts and Mark chapter 16? I want you for the time being to put out all of, out of your mind all of the questions about snake handlers and 
and that type of bizarre phenomena and any images that you have in your mind of the long-haired, tattooed, tongues-talking religious freaks that handle snakes. And we put all of that out of your mind, and we'll come back to that at the end. But what I want to do is I want to work through the passage and see what do we see here. Let's just take the text as it is, and then we'll come back and try and draw some applications from it at the end. Okay, so they, Acts 27 is all about a ship voyage gone wrong. They uh, hit a, a reef. They land on the, the, the sea. Some of the passengers have swum, uh, swam, swim, swam, swam from the ship <laughs> to the shore, landed on a sandy beach. Some of them have floated ashore on pieces from the ship, and they get there. They're soaking wet. The rains have set in. And it is then, Luke says in verse 1, that we realized or found out that they were on the island of Malta. Kind of an interesting island, the island of Malta. Let me tell you about it. It's a small little island about 60 miles south of Sicily. So keep in mind, the the voyage was supposed to take them from Caesarea to Sicily. So after the last month of being tossed around at the sea, they're only about 60 miles off course, which is incredible. That's the hand of God in itself. They're only about 60 miles off course. Small little tiny island off of the coast, southern coast of Sicily. It's about 18 miles long. It's about 9 miles wide. In Paul's day, it was inhabited by people of Phoenician descent. They spoke the Phoenician dialect. And the name Malta... The name Malta in the Phoenician language actually means a place of refuge. It's kind of ironic and appropriate, isn't it? After being tossed around at the sea for 14 days, they land at the island called the place of refuge. And that's exactly what the island became for them after that long voyage on board the ship. So they land at the island of Malta. Today, the island of Malta has about a population of about 335,000 people, and they are technically, quote, 100% Christian. And I use the term Christian in its loosest, most general, most meaningless sense possible, because 97% of them are what you would call Roman Catholics. The other 3% are what you would call Evangelical Protestant Christians. So they are 100% Christian. All of them go by the name Christians. There's no Muslims or anything like that on board the, on board the island. <laughs> I'm just going to hit the reboot button and start all over again. <laughs> 100% of them go by the name of Christian on the island. Today, actually, the, the island of Malta celebrates... February 10th as um, the, the celebration of Paul's shipwreck on the island, and they use they do that on February 10th. Now I don't know why they pick February 10th because if you if you know from what we've been studying, this happened in late fall, right? Happened probably the the middle to the end of November at the latest. February 10th is more pro- probably the date when Paul left because he stayed three months on the island of Malta before they left for Rome. But for whatever reason, they celebrate Paul's shipwreck on February 10th of every year. That's the island of Malta. They showed up and they landed on the island of Malta. Verse 2 can kind of be sort of a little misleading for you. Verse 2 says, The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain it set in and because of the cold they kindled a fire and received us all. So the rain is coming down, it's cold out. All of them are on the shore of the island. They are soaking wet, drenched. They have no dry provisions, not a dry stitch of clothing. It's cold outside. It's the middle of November and the rain is starting to come down and they run into some natives on the island who show them extraordinary kindness. Now, if you have the NIV, it translates it islanders. The King James, I think, translates it barbarous peoples and the the New King James and the NASB translates it natives. Now, in your mind, you probably have an image and I want you to erase that image from your mind because The word native does not mean native in what you're probably picturing in your mind. You're probably picturing them stumbling off of the beach into the jungle or something and seeing some dark-skinned guy with a loincloth and a bunch of teeth hanging around his neck carrying a spear with a little small head up on top of it. If that's what you're thinking, that's not what it is. The term native is the Greek word barbaroi, and it literally means a barbarian. But it doesn't have any of the negative connotations, none of the pejorative sense that you and I would use the term barbarian. It's just, it's, it's not a negative word. It wasn't an insult to call somebody a barbarian. 
A barbarian or a barbaroi was, barbaroi was somebody who was a non-Greek speaker. These people are Phoenician descent, so they speak the Phoenician dialect. They're non-Greeks. They don't speak Greek. They weren't raised in Greek. And in Paul's day, you had two classes of people. You had Greeks and you had non-Greeks. You had Greeks and you had barbarians. And that's the sense that Paul uses it. Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to Greek speakers and non-Greek speakers. Those two basic classifications of humanity. So it's not a negative word. So if you ever hear me call my children barbarians, you know that it's a term of endearment. It's nothing, <laughs> nothing negative, nothing pejorative in it whatsoever. Um, native is really not the idea of the word. Barbarian is really, those kind of ideas don't really carry what it is that Paul is talking about. It's barbaroi. And interesting how that word came to be, by the way. To a Greek, any language that wasn't Greek, when they heard it, they just said it just sounds like bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbars or barbaroi. And to them, it was just anybody who didn't speak Greek just sounded to them like we would say today, blah, 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 blah. Right? Bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbars or barbarians, just somebody who didn't speak Greek. So those are the natives, and they're obviously not uncivilized, because what do they do? They have 276 people from on board the ship who have showed up on their island on the sand. They see them out in the cold. They, they're not sort of grubbing through the dirt looking for seeds and gnats to eat and uh, looking for heads to shrink when 276 meals show up at their doorstep. That's not the idea at all. They see these people who are very civilized people, very ordinary people like you and I. They had a culture. They had commerce. They had uh, houses. And they see 276 people show up in the middle of the storm. They're soaking wet, and so they kindle them a fire. And it is in gathering sticks for that fire that something providential happens. The Apostle Paul is the one. He's out gathering sticks to throw onto the fire. And in the midst of that, verse 3 says, Paul gathered up a armload full of sticks, and one of them happened to be a snake. It's cold out. The snake is lethargic. It's slow, probably stiff, just gets bundled up with the sticks. And the Apostle Paul carries that over to the fire to throw that onto the fire. And in putting those, that bundle of sticks on the fire, the snake senses the heat and is immediately shocked to life and grabs onto the hand of the, the first hand it can get to, which happens to be Paul's. And the viper just clasped onto that, fastens itself onto his hand. Now, what do you do at that point? <laughs> you scream like a schoolgirl, right? That's what you do. You scream like a schoolgirl. The Apostle Paul doesn't do that. How many of you, by the way, are have a thing about snakes? You don't like snakes, just by a show of hand. Not that... Okay, that's good. Just go ahead, man. You can put your hand up. I'm just, it's all right to be brave enough to admit that. I don't have a fear of snakes, but I the snakes make me... Uh, queasy. It's not that I'm scared of them. I just anything that can move even quickly without arms and legs. Something wrong with that. So I have this thing with snakes. It's just they make me sick. It's not that I'm scared or terrified of them. But I suspect that if you had bundled, uh, grabbed up a bundle of sticks and you were getting ready to drop it onto the fire, and all of a sudden you felt that piercing pain in your hand, and you held it up, and there was a viper, not a sniper, a viper, <laughs> hanging from your hand, you would scream like a schoolgirl. The apostle Paul doesn't do that. Now, we get sort of a glimpse or at least an implication of what his response would have been like in verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, hanging from his hand. That, that phrase that the natives had long enough to see the Apostle Paul's hand with that viper attached to it tells us that for whatever reason, he did not, as fast as the speed of light, shake that off and stomp on it and run like you and I might do. If something like that happened to us. It was on there long enough for the natives to see it dangling from his hand. 
Now, I don't know what the Apostle Paul was thinking, but knowing Paul and knowing his faith and knowing what the angel had told him and what the Lord Jesus had told him, I think I can put myself into Paul's place and I think I can take a good guess at what he was thinking. You know what I think he was thinking? I think he was thinking, now this should be interesting to see how the Lord gets me out of this because the angel and the Lord said, I'm going to Rome and I'm going to stand before Caesar. So now what is the Lord going to do with this? Now, however long it took for the Apostle Paul to get the viper off of his hand, the natives had long enough to see it. And that shows us something about his calm resolve. He didn't panic. He didn't scream. He didn't start to doubt God and say, Oh, God, why did you bring me to the island of Malta? You promised me to get me to Rome. Now I'm going to die because of a snake bite. He didn't do that at all. Didn't doubt God. Didn't curse God. Didn't wonder about God, what he was doing. I think he just with calm resolve, just sort of, verse 5, shook it off into the fire. Now, some people doubt this and say, This never happened. Luke's making this up to make Paul look good. Now Luke is a medical doctor, and he was there, and he was an eyewitness. Luke, Aristarchus, they're standing around the fire with Paul. I think Luke saw this happen, and as proof that he is making this up, people will point out to the point out the fact that there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta today. Is that proof that this never happened? No. All it tells us is there's no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta today. It doesn't tell us anything about whether there are poisonous snakes on the island of Malta almost 2,000 years ago. So Luke is an eyewitness. He sees that. Verse 5. Sorry, look at verse 4 again. I want you to notice the natives' response. Now these people are, these people, these barbarians, these natives, these islanders, these people who live there on the island know the area. They know the snakes. They see the viper. And look at their response. Verse 4, they said, began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He got bit by a snake. So if he got bit by a snake, then something bad has happened to him, and if something bad has happened to him, then even though he got through the storm okay, and even though he survived the shipwreck okay, and even though he got to the island okay, and came here and is huddled around the fire, justice has not allowed him to live. Now ironically, justice in your translation should be with a capital J. And you know why? Because justice was the name of one of their goddesses. So what are the islanders saying? You can't escape justice. She will hunt you down. She will find you. And because something bad has happened to you, justice will not allow you to live. Now this is ironic. And I want to kind of pull apart their statement here for a second because it's very instructive. And it's got some warnings for us to take in, into account as well. I want you to look at this passage from a Romans 1 perspective. And by Romans 1 perspective, I mean the perspective that says all of creation testifies to God. And even those who do not have written revelation, the Bible, Old and New Testament, even those who have never heard the gospel and never heard the written word of God know enough intuitively, instinctively to be held accountable before a holy God for their sin. Because, Romans 1 says, the invisible things about God can be seen from the creation. And men know certain things about God's eternality and about God's nature and about God's person that even knowing those things, because they love their sin and they love darkness, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So man knows certain things to be true, But in his lostness and because of his fallen heart and because of his wickedness, he suppresses what he knows to be true in his unrighteousness and in his sin. So here's the question. What do these islanders know to be true about God that they can see from creation and that they can see from nature? Their statement demonstrates that they had a few things right. And let me show you what those few things were. The first thing that they had right about the world and the way that it works is that there was a supreme being. They called her justice. They didn't know that his name is Jehovah or Yahweh. But they called her justice. 
But they obviously did not believe that the world came into being by chance and random processes and natural processes. They didn't believe any of that. They did believe in a supreme being or beings. They were actually polytheists. And one of their gods was the goddess of justice. Well, they had that right. They had it right that the earth is not an accident. Second, they had right that the events that they witnessed were not accidental. You see, in their way of thinking, certain things were providential. This creation, which had been created by providential, by a supreme being, or supreme beings, was being ruled by providence. They don't look at the viper biting Paul and say, wow, what an accident that is. What do they look at it and they say? He must have done something wicked because justice has not allowed him to live. They see a reason in the things that are going on and what they have just witnessed. They see a purpose behind the events. You and I understand there's a purpose behind these events too. They understand there's a purpose behind the events, but they don't understand what the purpose is. The third thing that they got right was that they seemed to understand that that evil pursues sinners. That the way of the transgressor is hard. And that when you do something, there are ramifications in this life to the wicked and rebellious things that you do. And that sometimes you live with the consequences. It seems that they understood that. It also seems that they understood that murder is a moral evil. You see that? He must be a murderer since he did, since something bad happened to him. He must have murdered somebody and now justice is getting its revenge. Justice is getting her due. They seem to understand at least that murder was a morally reprehensible evil. And they seem to also understand that murder was an evil that deserved what? Death. Death. You see the moral law of God written on their hearts? Do you see that? They understood these things instinctively. It doesn't mean they were flawless, but they understood certain things instinctively. And the fifth thing that they seem to have gotten, got right was that justice is inevitable. Justice will be done. These sins, these moral evils, these wicked things that we do will be punished. So it seems that Paul's assessment in Romans 1 was, was right on, spot on. They seem to understand that the world is created by a supreme being, governed by providence, justice was inevitable, that murder was a moral crime, and that evil pursues sinners. They got a lot of things right, didn't they? No, no Jews on the island that we know of. The gospel had never come to the island until Paul stepped onto the shore. So they had no written revelation. They had no Old Testament scriptures. They had no nothing, no special revelation from God at all to tell them these things. But they were able to look at the natural order and able to discern certain things. Even, even things pertaining to what is morally right and morally reprehensible. They knew these things instinctively. What did they get wrong? There's a couple of assumptions that they made, and you could probably think of others that you see in the text. But let me give to you two. They make two assumptions that are horribly wrong. The first assumption that they make is that all sinners will be punished in this life. You see that? The snake bit him, therefore it must be justice giving her due to him in this life. That's the assumption, is that all sinners will be punished in this life. And that justice will have her revenge, she will have her way, she will mete out her justice, she will mete out what is due to this individual. So their assumption is that all sinners are punished in this life. Is that true? Friends, do you realize that the vast majority of sin is not punished in this life? You realize that? Hitler died in the arms of his mistress. How just is that? And if you just look at it from this earthly perspective, you say justice is never done. That was what got Solomon all mixed up in the book of Ecclesiastes. It happens to the righteous how it should happen to the wicked, and it happens to the wicked as to how it should happen to the righteous. And it seems flip-flopped. And so Solomon just said, from under the sun perspective, the wicked have good things happen to them, the righteous have bad things happen to them, What do we make of that? He said vanity. It's vanity. I don't understand it. He's looking at it from the temporal perspective. And these islands were doing it, these islanders were doing it the same way. 
saying justice will always be done in this life. That was their assumption. But that's not necessarily the case. Is it not true that sometimes the wicked prosper? Yeah, you're tempted to say, man, almost all the times the wicked prosper, right? They get Nobel Peace Prizes, they get contracts, they get money, they get all of the accolades, they get the Emmys, they get everything. Psalm 73, they're fat, they're at ease, nothing bad happens to them, right? They seem to stand firmly and securely. They have everything that they could possibly want. They're in a place of security. And Asaph the psalmist says in Psalm 73, it wasn't until I entered into the house of God that I saw their end. Once I saw their end, then I can see how it's all flip-flop. But their wrong assumption, the Maltons' wrong assumption, was that sinners are punished in this life. The second wrong assumption that they made, and this one I want you to listen to because as Christians we have the tendency to make this mistake, and I hear it often. The second wrong assumption that they make is that those who suffer in this life are wicked. Those who suffer in this life are wicked. He got bit by a snake. He must have done something wrong. The religious leaders in Jesus' day made the same mistake. And Jesus took a headline off the front page of the Jerusalem Post, the newspaper of his day, something that a current event. And he said, you remember over in the city of Siloam where that tower fell down and it killed 18 people? You think that those 18 people were more wicked than everybody who lives in Jerusalem just because something bad happened to them? And what was he doing? He was correcting their misunderstanding that just because something bad happens to somebody doesn't mean that they're wicked. When they, Jesus and the disciples passed the man who was born blind, his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said it wasn't this man or his parents that sinned. He was born blind for the glory of God. They misunderstood. They made the wrong assumption that because something bad happened to somebody, it therefore must be evil or wicked. Job's friends did the same thing. Job, it's because you've sinned that all these bad things have happened to you. It's because you've been wicked. It's because you've slept with other women. It's because you've withheld due from your servants and your workers. It's because of the wickedness of your heart that all of these bad things have happened. Was that God's assessment of Job? No. The Lord said of Job, have you beheld my servant Job? He's blameless and he serves me and he loves me. He had done nothing, nothing that deserved any of the suffering that he endured. And Job's friend says, because you're wicked, but you've hidden it from all of us. You and I make the same mistakes. You ever hear a Christian say, oh, I got in an accident and such and such happened. The Lord must be trying to get my attention. Why would you think that? Why would you think that just because something bad happens to you, the Lord must be trying to get your attention? Maybe, friends, listen to this, this will blow you away. Maybe it's because the Lord has your attention. Maybe it's because your walk is right before Him. Maybe it's because you're sanctified and you're growing in holiness. And maybe it's because your relationship is good with Him that He's chosen to bring affliction into your life, to drive you closer to Him, to sanctify you more, and to demonstrate His power through your weakness. Maybe that's why He allowed it to happen. And we always say such and such happened. It must be the Lord trying to get my attention. Do well, you think He only has one stick to get your attention with and that's evil things? What kind of a view of God does that display? What kind of a view of God does that show that we have when we think that whenever something wicked happens, it must be because God is angry, it must be because He's upset, it must be because of my sin? Listen, friends, the majority of the suffering that the elect go through has nothing to do with their sin whatsoever. Nothing. The majority of the things that we suffer have nothing to do with chastisement. They have nothing to do with sin. They have to do with sanctification, with a purification, with a growth in faith. They have to do with the fact that God uses these things to draw us to Himself to demonstrate His power in us. And the Maltons made the mistake that, oh, if He suffers, it must be because He's wicked. Wrong! That's not the case. That is seldom the case. 
Now, if there's sin in your life, unconfessed sin, and you know it, and God is bringing chastening into your life, then He's trying to get your attention. Then He's trying to wake you up. Then He's trying to drive you back to Himself. But the majority of the time, that's not the case. You suffer from something, it's not because you're wicked. If wickedness, if some, if, if it's because of wickedness that something bad happens to us, then Jesus Christ was the most wicked person who ever lived. And the Apostle Paul was second. But our wickedness is not the result, or suffering is not the result necessarily of wickedness. Now verse 5 is going to make mad a lot of animal rights activists. Look at verse 5. What does Paul do? Barbecues a sniper. Shakes the viper off into the fire. We're going to have roasted snake tonight for dinner. We need fuel for the fire and this snake will serve as, as good enough fuel. He shakes it off into the fire. And the snake falls into the fire and the Maltons begin to watch him. Now, Luke is what? What is Luke's occupation? He's a physician. He's a doctor. And physicians in those days, were, especially in that area, were well acquainted with snakes, well acquainted with snake bites. They knew how to protect against them. They knew how to treat them. And my suspicion is that as soon as Paul got bit, Luke was over there looking at his hand, saying, let me see that, Paul. And he looked at it, and Luke's assessment of it is that he suffered no harm. Paul went about his business, picking up sticks for the fire, doing his thing. Serving his people. And there's no harm. Now, I don't know. Listen, I don't know if how the Lord did this. I don't know if he just made Paul immune to the venom. Or I don't know if he kept the teeth from sinking into the flesh. Or if he allowed the teeth to sink into the flesh but not put in any venom. I don't know how the Lord protected Paul from that. My suspicion is that the teeth must have broke the skin and must have sunk into Paul's flesh. Otherwise, the islanders would have just simply said, Phew. Boy, it's a good one. You missed that one. That was lucky that he bit on but didn't actually puncture the skin. I think the viper must have punctured the skin. So the Lord did one of two things. He either just simply made the venom of no effect on Paul, which is a miracle, or he allowed the venom not to come into Paul's hand, which in itself is a miracle. And he shakes off the, the serpent into the fire, and the Maltons are watching him, and time goes by, and more time goes by, and they're expecting him to swell up. They're expecting that venom to do what venom does to get into the bloodstream, to break apart the capillaries, to cause internal hemorrhaging, and for the hand to swell up. They don't see the hand swelling up. They don't see his arm swelling up. And they watch him, and he gathers more sticks and stands by the fire with everybody else. And pretty soon they begin to change their thinking about Paul. They notice that he hasn't swelled up. He hasn't dropped dead. So what do they conclude? Look at verse 6. Seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they say, oh, he must be a god. <laughs> That's quite a switch from the first one, isn't it? Something bad happened, you must be a murderer. Hmm. Guess it wasn't bad after all, you must be a god. This remind you of Acts chapter 14 when Paul went into the city of Lystra and Paul and Barnabas healed the cripple at the gate of the city. And what did the people inside the city do? They said, oh, the gods have come, become like men and come down to us. And they got garlands and they got the oxen, they dragged them out into the city and went to sacrifice the oxen to worship Paul, whom they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and Barnabas that they called Zeus. And they said the gods have become like men and come down to us. And they were going to worship him. And Paul and Barnabas ran out into the crowd to refrain them and tore their clothes and said, Men, brethren, we have come here to preach the gospel to you. We're men of just the same nature as you, here with a message to teach you to turn from these things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. We're not gods. Now, even though Luke doesn't say so in the text, my suspicion is that the Apostle Paul would have moved just as quickly and just as fervently to correct any misunderstandings that they have. He would not have received worship as a god. And the minute they began to attribute to him deity, the Apostle Paul would have corrected that and said, no, 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 no. No, if anything, I have a message here about the one true deity. 
Now here's the question from Acts 28. What are we to make of this? We have a snake bite. We have somebody who got bitten by a snake and now uh, nothing happened to him. There's no harm that came to him. What, what do we do? Does that mean that we start handling snakes now? Show up next Sunday and we'll have a big clear tank up front and we'll all start handling snakes. All of you first and then I'll, I'll handle them afterwards. Now, my suspicion is that none of you sitting here today are going to rush out after lunch today and buy a poisonous snake and take it home. Some of you look disappointed that you're not going to have that happen. We're going to, let me give you a couple things that we can learn, a couple positive things that we can learn from Paul and a couple of warnings that we can discern from the passage. The first positive thing that I want you to notice from the passage is Paul's service. Paul's service. Do you notice what he's doing? Picking up sticks. 276 people came on board the shore. And who do we see picking up sticks for the fire? Paul. Every time we see Paul in the book of Acts, he's active. Never sitting on his haunches. He didn't cuddle up on the beach and start complaining and say, oh man, I'm cold, I'm wet, somebody start a fire, somebody do something to warm me up. He didn't complain about the shipwreck, didn't complain about the storm, didn't complain about the rain, didn't complain about being cold, didn't complain about being wet, didn't complain about other people doing something for him. Apostle Paul got up and he was active. He was always busy. If he wasn't teaching, he was preaching. If he wasn't preaching, he was studying. If he wasn't studying, he was traveling. Or he was ministering. Or he was discipling. Or he was training up leaders. Or he was doing something. Always doing something. Even the last the last letter that he writes from a prison, just days away from execution, he writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, bring me my books. Bring me my books. Why? Always active. Always serving other people. That was Paul. A humble man. Nothing was below him. Some of you here love to serve other people as long as other people notice that you're serving them. That's typically what we do. Typically, we honestly in our minds think that there are some things that are just below us. And um I just had a story come to my mind, and I'm debating in my mind whether or not I want to tell it. But I will because Dave Rich isn't here. So <laughs> I will use him as an illustration. A couple years ago in Awana, we had one kid who came to Awana sick to his stomach. And uh, um, not upper sick to his stomach, but lower sick to his stomach. And he went into the bathroom downstairs in the church, and he got sick all over a whole lot of stuff. And I didn't find out about it until most of the evening was over with. But guess who was in there mopping the floor and cleaning up the mess? Guess who didn't think that that was below them? It was one of the elders, Dave Rich. For some of you guys are like that. For some of you, there is just absolutely nothing that is below you and you're willing to serve other people in doing the smallest and the most insignificant and the most unnoticeable and the most menial of tasks. And it, we need to be reminded that there are opportunities that we have every day, sometimes hundreds of them, to serve other people, to do something for other people. Maybe it's our kids, maybe it's our wife, our husband, a friend, a neighbor, something, something small. Paul wasn't doing anything glorious. He wasn't doing anything bombastic. just picking up sticks for the fire. The guy was a humble servant, a self-humbling servant. Second thing we notice about Paul is his faith. He responds as somebody who we would expect, he responds to us just as we would expect somebody who has an absolute confidence in the sovereignty and the providence and the goodness of God and and a knowledge of the fact that God knows not only the number of our days, but the content of our days. That all of our days are written down for us in a book before there's yet one of them. And the Apostle Paul doesn't question, he doesn't carp, he doesn't complain, he doesn't doubt God. He just simply says, something good's going to happen. From this, with a snake dangling from my hand, something good has to come of this. What's the Lord going to do with this? He's calm, his faith is resolute, and he doesn't begin to question God at all. Now what can we learn from the passage in terms of warning? The first thing that we learn 
is don't handle snakes because they'll bite you. Right? That's what we should learn. That's not what most people draw from this, at least not most of the shake and bake sort of a variety of charismatics. That's not what they draw from this. You know what they draw from this? We ought to be doing the same thing today. And they use this text in Mark chapter 16. What do we learn from this is that God does miraculously, providentially, sovereignly protect His children, sometimes using all of those means, providential and sovereign and in even miraculous ways to protect His children. But you and I cannot presume upon God to do the same for us, that just because He did something for Paul or the other apostles, that He will therefore do it to us. Well, what about Mark 16, which says these signs will follow those who believe. They will... Cast out demons in my name. They will speak with other tongues. They will drink poison and handle snakes. And no harm will come to them. And they will lay hands on the sick and the sick will be healed. What do we do with Mark 16? Let me just offer to you a warning about Mark 16. Mark 16, particularly verses 9 through 20, the canonicity of those verses is under question. And any Bible that you have sitting in your lap will have a note that this text is not in the majority of the manuscripts or the oldest manuscripts or something like that. So there is some doubt as to whether or not Mark 16 even is canonical, even even if it's an authentic ending to the book of Mark. And not doubts among liberals. I'm not, I'm not endorsing liberals and higher critics and skeptics and agnostics or anything like that. It's just that if you, you don't build doctrine on Mark 16. You don't do it. Even if we grant the legitimacy of that and say, okay, I'll grant you that Mark 16 is valid. Let's just assume that for the moment. The most you can make of that is that that promise is given to the apostles to whom it was issued. And verse 20 says that the apostles went out and preached the word and confirmed that word with many signs. That's the most you can make of it. Not that all believers are guaranteed the ability to handle snakes and be bit without poison killing them. That promise is not to us. You and I have to go back to that principle, prescription versus description. Remember, there are some things in Scripture that are described. There are other things in Scripture that are prescribed. Is this described or prescribed? It's described. Luke describes for us what happens. But there's no place in Scripture where it is prescribed for us to go out and handle snakes and do likewise. This is a miraculous thing that the Lord did for Paul. So the first warning is that you can't take this to mean that you and I should be handling snakes. Second warning, and this I want you to keep in your mind because it's going to come into play in the next several weeks. Miracles can be easily misunderstood. You notice that? What do they do when the viper bites Paul and he lives? Do they say, oh, you must be a messenger of the one true God with the message of salvation, and there must be one God in heaven, and you are his servant. Do they say that? Nope. You must be God. That's what they assume. You must be God. You notice how easily in Scripture miracles are misunderstood? Miracles do not create faith. Miracles do not, in and of themselves, without any other revelation, point to God. There are false miracles. There are false miracle workers. Jesus did miracles on a scale that was unprecedented. It was mind-boggling. And what did the what did the Pharisees say? You do this by the power of Beelzebub. Talk about willing blindness. He raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, the Sanhedrin. All the chief priests get together and they say, look, if we allow this man to continue doing this, the whole nation's going to believe in him. We better kill him. Couldn't deny the miracle. Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John healed the cripple in the temple. The Sanhedrin drags him in before the Sanhedrin and then tries them. What do they say? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has been done to this man is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. What are we going to do with them? We've got to tell them to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. The miracles did not create faith. The miracles in some peoples, in some people, hardened their heart. In other people, they used the miracles as an occasion to blaspheme. 
And there are some today who say, well, if we could just get back to the era of miracles with apostles and prophets today performing miracles and the types of miracles that Jesus and the apostles performed, as if it's in our power to create that, if we could just get back to those kind of showy displays of miracles in the churches, then people would believe. All of the lost, we'd have a worldwide revival. Is that true? It's not true. Not true at all. Miracles are very limited because they can be easily misunderstood, easily misattributed, easily misrepresented and and misinterpreted. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And we just churn out idols out of our heart. We have idols of the heart. We have idols that we worship. Our heart is a perpetual idol factory. And you take an unsaved individual and you perform a sign in their midst. And you know what will happen? Likely harden their heart. If a skeptic or a, or a non-Christian or atheist ever comes to you and says, well, if Jesus would appear before me or if, if, if God would perform a miracle right in my midst, then I would believe on Christ. You just turn right back to him and say, no, you wouldn't. You'd find some way of explaining away what you just saw so that you could continue in your unbelief. Because thousands have done it before you and you would do the same thing. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. So we'll pick up the rest of the miracles, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. So grateful, God, that you reveal to us in Scripture who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you protect us, that you're sovereign, that you're gracious and good to us. We ask, God, that you would allow us and give us the grace to draw right conclusions from what we've just read and studied, and that you would be honored through a right application of these principles. And help us, if anything, to model Paul's faith and his servant's heart and a love for each other and serving one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.